Thank you, Les. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in those wonderful songs that exalt Christ. Uh, what a privilege. And I also wanted to thank you ladies who told me you were looking forward to this evening. I, I was fascinated. I, I wasn't keeping a tally, but I, I'm pretty sure more ladies told me they were looking forward to this evening than the men. Why is that? Um, we'll find out. Yeah, it is good to be back at the John Bunyan Conference. I lost track of how many years it's been, but probably seven or eight. And uh, glad to bring my bride of 39 years with me this time, Gladine. It's a delight to be able to travel with her when I speak. We're among friends here. Some of you are new friends. Some of you I'm just getting to know this week. Some of you are old friends. I won't say how old, but uh, we've known the Argabrites for more than 30 years. Um, boy, you guys are getting old. <laughs> No, I wanted to ask, I'm going to ask Mike, uh, everyone likes to pick on Mike Argerbright. If you don't know Mike yet, get to know him this week so you have reasons to pick on him. But um, um, Mike, you've been an athlete, seriously. I mean, this guy, high school, college, even uh, went professional for a day or so. Um, he can tell you, I'm serious, he, he can tell you that story. But Mike, you, you played football, you ran track. Uh, did you have coaches when you ran track? Did you have coaches when you played football? Yes. Why? What What would be the value of a coach? Instilling discipline, instruction, and uh, technique, motivation. And you've been a coach. I can tell the way you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't know I was going to ask him this. But, you know, a number of you have also played sports somewhere in your past. Maybe the distant past, maybe not so long ago for some of you, but high school, college, um, some community sporting things, maybe even church softball. I mean, you, you had a coach. A coach shows you how to play the sport. How many of you have a driver's license? Not just the men, but how many of you have driver's license? How many of you had someone teach you how to drive? Maybe a parent, older sibling, teacher at school, almost all of you. If you drive and you didn't raise your hand, would you let me know when you're leaving the parking lot? <laughs> I, I think I'll wait for a few minutes, let you get on your way. Uh, if you drive, you had someone teach you how to drive. If you played organized sports, you had a coach teaching you how to play that sport. Now, now let me focus the rest of the evening primarily on the men, the married men. How many of you men here in this room are married? Okay, most every, almost all the men here. Uh, for you men that are married, how many of you men had someone coach you in husbanding? That's actually a pretty good percentage. I, I would just eyeball it, say probably about 20% of the guys in this room could say with some integrity, I had someone coach me in husbanding. Maybe it was your dad. Maybe you had a godly dad who said, son, I want to teach you what it is to be a married man. I want to teach you about husbanding from a godly perspective. Maybe it was a pastor. Someone coached you. I end up speaking at men's conferences every so often, and I often ask that same question. When I face a group of guys, I'll say, how many of you men had someone teach you how to be a husband? Someone to coach you in husbanding? I think tonight is probably about the highest percentage I've ever seen. I would say 20% is bouncing on the high level of what I've seen as a response to that question. Just last week, spoke at a men's conference in Portland, Maine. Uh, some of you know that New England is largely unreached. There were about 500 men in that room, and I asked that question. 
How many of you had someone coach you in husbanding? I doubt I saw more than 10 to 15 hands go up in a room of 500 men. And yet, we place so much value in playing football or running track or playing softball or even driving a car that we say, if you're going to do one of those things, you need someone to teach you how. You need someone to train you how. And yet, what ministry is there that has the weight of husbanding? And yet so few of us can say, yeah, I had someone take me aside as a young man and say, watch me, listen to me. I want to teach you how to be a husband. I've been a pastor for a while now, 33 years. And we're in a Christian college town, so we have a lot of young couples come through our church. I've done premarital counseling for well over 100 couples. Um, very few. Very few young men come ready to be married. So few of them have any idea of what it means to be a husband. Like many of you pastors here in the room, not only have I done a lot of premarital counseling, but also marriage counseling, where couples come in and their, their marriage is hanging on by a thread. You know, and I often lean on the man. I usually lean on the man if they're both believers. And yet how many men have I had drop their heads and stare at their shoelaces and say something to the effect of, I, I know I'm supposed to love my wife, but no one ever showed me how. No one ever showed me how. Some of you men in the room are feeling like that right now. And I guarantee you that you have men in your church that feel like that. That we're living in an era, and I think those of us that are older, we could testify that it's increasingly that way. Increasingly, we see young men coming up who have never been shown, never been taught, never been coached in husbanding. And like most men, most men don't share their feelings. And so they suffer quietly. Suffer with fear. Suffer in fear. Suffer in this sort of dejection. I don't know what I'm doing, so let me just stumble along and hope it all works out. Gladdy and I enjoyed so much sitting at dinner with the Shawbacks. Um, 66 years next month? 66 years next Come on. <laughs> These are our heroes. <laughs> if God gives a couple long lives to celebrate long marriages, what, what a blessing. And as to, I asked Don at the table there, you know, what lessons do you have for young married people like Gladine and me? I mean, we've only been married 39 years, you know, so what lessons? And Don says, well, those of us that have been gripped by God's grace, we have every reason to, to have hope, every reason to move forward because we've been gripped by God's grace. And I want to encourage you tonight that I, I agree with Brother Don, that's true. If we've been gripped by God's grace, if we've had by the Holy Spirit our attention zeroed in on Jesus Christ, then we have reason for hope. The gospel empowers us tonight and even more so tomorrow night. I want to talk about how the gospel comes and makes a difference in our marriage. Gladie and I have enjoyed the habit over the years of reading books on marriage. And one that we read a few years ago that I would commend to you is called Love That Lasts. When Marriage Meets Grace. Any of you here read that? have already read that? Love That Lasts. Okay, now you have another book to read. Love That Lasts, When Marriage Meets Grace. It's written by a pastor and his wife, Gary and Betsy Ricucci. 
And they said this in their book. Listen to this profound statement. They said, when we grasp the depth of God's love for us revealed in the gospel, when we rest in the joy of God's forgiveness toward us in the gospel, when we experience God's transforming to us in the gospel, when we begin to emulate the pattern of humility and obedience we see in the gospel, what a wonderful difference that will make in our lives and marriages. Listen, nothing is more essential to a marriage And nothing brings more hope than applying the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm very encouraged with the renewed emphasis on the gospel in our day. But sometimes people ask me things like, well, how practical is that? Isn't that just for the theologues to sit around and discuss? How practical is it? It's extremely practical. And nothing will transform a marriage like applying the gospel. So tonight, and as I said, even more so tomorrow night, I want to focus on Jesus Christ and His gospel and what difference it makes in our marriages. And I do want to focus on the men tonight. I'm so glad you ladies are here, you sisters are here. And um, let me just encourage you ladies that you're going to hear about Jesus Christ tonight. And it doesn't matter if you're a female, hearing about Jesus Christ and how much He loves us should be an encouragement to your soul, should be blowing fresh winds of the gospel into your souls. So, ladies, don't tune out. But neither bruise your husband's ribs tonight. You know what I'm talking about. It's, uh, you know, as I talk about husbands love your wives, you're going, that's what I was trying to tell you. That's what I was trying to tell you, you know. And your husband goes home tonight with ribs that are kind of sore. So I'll be watching. I can see everyone in an auditorium this size and uh, seeing how many of you ladies have active elbows. (laughs) Turn with me, if you will, to that well-known passage on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to focus in particular on one or two verses. But let's read the part that's addressed to husbands. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 25. And let me finish the chapter, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Ephesians 5, the Word of God says, beginning in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Whoever let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I don't know how old I was before it struck me that Paul hadn't just lost his train of thought. You know, in verse 32, the mystery's profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. You know, I guess for a long time, I just kind of assumed that Paul's been talking about marriage here, writing about marriage, and somehow maybe had one of those senior moments or something, and he just kind of lost his train of thought, and he had this little interjection about Christ and the church, and then he gets back to marriage again. And, and eventually, the Holy Spirit, you know, began to enlighten me here as I was reading the Word of God that... Paul hadn't lost his train of thought. This was his train of thought. This was his point. 
that marriage is a living reenactment of the greatest love story ever told. That God wanted to put his son, Jesus Christ, and his love for his bride, the church, on display. And so marriage is an appointed means, a primary appointed means of putting on display the love of Christ to his bride. Did you catch verse 25? One more time. Husbands, love your wives as kathos, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, we not, need not be hopeless. We need not be discouraged saying, my dad never showed me how to love my wife. My dad wasn't even a Christian, or my dad was rather passive. Uh, as a young man, no one ever took me aside and trained me in husbanding. I don't know what I'm doing. I want to encourage every Christian man here. We all have the perfect mentor. We all have the perfect mentor, Jesus Christ, that he loves his bride, the church, perfectly. He empowers us. He shows us. He motivates us how to love our wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. So what we want to do this evening, tomorrow night we want to talk about problems. How does the gospel help us deal with marriage problems? But tonight I want to set for us men the perfect husband is a model for us. A gospel-fueled model. How does Christ love his bride, the church? I've picked some. I've picked some of the characteristics of Christ's love for his bride that should be seen in our lives as Christian husbands. One, Christ loves the church with a predetermined love. I enjoy being here at Bunyan Conference. I teach on this subject in places where I'm, I'm, I'm treading on thin ice as soon as I say this. Here, I'm with friends. And I can talk about Christ having a predetermined love, or we could even use a more theological term, a predestined love. That Let me just ask you this way, and please feel free to interact with me, and for our friends listening on, on the internet, I'll repeat your answer. When did God decide to love us? Before the foundation of the world. How do you know that? Because it says so in the Bible, exactly. Ephesians chapter 1 is probably the most well-known passage on that, but there are others. But in Ephesians 1, it says, In love He predestined us to be... Adopted as his sons, didn't he? he? It says there in Ephesians chapter 1 that before the foundation of the world, God decided to love us. Think about that for a minute. He decided to love us before he ever said, let there be light. That's a predetermined love. Predetermined love. Or we would say an unconditional love. God didn't say, well, let me see how the church pans out. You know, let, let me see what kind of bride I end up with here. You know, I'll, I'll watch and I'll decide. I'll see if my church, my bride, turns out to be the kind of bride that pleases me and obeys me and all those things that he has the right to say. He decided ahead of time to love us. You and I as Christian husbands can, by God's grace and must, because of God's grace, love our wives with a predetermined love. What do I mean by that? Next month we celebrate 39 years. Been a, been a good while, but I can still remember the essence of our wedding vows. Uh, you married men, can you remember your wedding vows, at least the essence of them? 
Enough to answer this question. How many ifs were there in your wedding vows? How many ifs? None. Did any of you have any ifs in your wedding vows? Because I want to talk to the pastor who did your wedding. <laughs> As I said, being in a Christian college town, do lots of weddings, doing premarital counseling simultaneously, four couples right now. I guarantee you that if a couple came to me and says, Pastor Larry, we have these vows we want to use at our wedding, and they had ifs in them, I would have to say, we need to renegotiate your wedding or I won't do it. Because there will be no ifs in your wedding vows. I have never heard of a wedding that had ifs in the wedding vows. I will love you so long as. I will love you if. I, 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 will, I promise to be a husband to you as long as you do this. If you do that. There were no ifs. June 21st, 1975. A hot summer day. I looked into these brilliant blue eyes of my 19-year-old bride. And I said, I, Larry, take you, Gladine, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, sickness and health, rich or poor, till death do us part. There were no ifs. Now, as a 21-year-old groom, how did I know what kind of wife she would really turn out to be? I mean, I was hopeful, and I've not been disappointed. (laughs) But how did I know? How did I know that she was going to turn out to be a good wife? I didn't. That wasn't the point. I was making a predetermined love. I was committing to a predetermined love. Gladine, I promise, I covenant, I vow today. To love you as your husband, no matter what happens. No matter what happens. I choose to love you. You know, sometimes when I'm talking to men, even men that are in apparently good marriages, you know, why do you love your wife? She's just so beautiful. I asked a guy this just recently. I mean, my wife's just so beautiful. You know, some of us really are blessed with beautiful wives. You know, to say, I, I love my wife because she's so beautiful. I, I said to a guy just, just recently, I said, you know, that's, that's wonderful that God blessed you with a beautiful wife. He did me as well. I, I'm astonished at God's grace that he allowed me to have a beautiful wife. <laughs> when people see our daughters and say, they look like their mother, I always say, praise the Lord. Can you imagine the alternative? <laughs> but what if? God forbid, but what if my wife were in a a fire or a car accident and she lost her beauty? Would I say, I don't love her anymore? Well, I love my wife because she's just so kind to me. She's so thoughtful. She does all these things for me. Well, praise God. Praise God. What a gift. But what what if she develops Alzheimer's and she doesn't remember your name? Would you stop loving her? So even those good things we say, I love my wife because I love my wife since, I would challenge us to rethink through that. I love my wife because Christ loves me. And because he loves me, I love my wife no matter what. It's a predetermined love. What's another characteristic of Christ's love for us, his bride? How about this one? Christ loves a church with a particular love. I'm on safe ground here as well, am I not? You know, often being Calvinist, you know, you get asked, I get asked, well, don't you think God loves everybody? 
I don't, I don't like walking through that landmine, do you? <laughs> so I usually say something like, yeah I, yeah, I think he does. I think he loves everybody, his image bearers. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. In a general way, God loves everybody. We're all image bearers, all human beings. But isn't it also true that he has a particular love? Or we might even say a peerless love for his bride. Even here in this passage we just read in Ephesians 5.25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a particular love. And people that are challenged with this doctrine that probably most of us here believe is scriptural, people that struggle with that, I often ask them, would you consider the high priestly prayer? Would you think about what Jesus prayed that night before the cross? As the Jews did, Jesus prayed aloud. They usually didn't pray silently. And by God's kind providence, the apostles were allowed to eavesdrop. And the Holy Spirit brought it back to mind, and John recorded it for us in John 17. And they heard Jesus pray that night, Father, I am not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you've given me. And I find that so fascinating and in a way encouraging that hours before the cross, hours before the cross, Jesus says, Father, my people are who are on my heart right now. It's my people. It's the people you've given me. I have a love for them that's different than the love for the world. And so tonight, Lord, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for my people, those you've given me. That there is a clear, particular love, or we would even say peerless love, that Christ has for his church, his bride. And for us married men, are our wives convinced that we have a peerless love, that we have a love for our wives that is, that is clearly particular to them and to them alone? Now, I realize that we're living in a dangerous era. And um, even if you've never committed the act of adultery physically, pornography comes looking for us. I can still remember counseling one couple. She had caught him with pornography and insisted they come for counseling. And he came, heels dragging, came into counseling. And I can still remember him sitting in my office beside his wife and him saying to me, when I challenged him on his lust, his pornography, he said, what harm does it do? And sitting beside him with his wife with tears just rolling down her cheeks. Now, by God's kind grace, I don't usually lose it in counseling sessions. But I got angry. And I said, look at your wife. Look at your wife. Now, ask me again, who does it hurt? And I said to her in his presence, how does it make you feel when you know your husband's spending this time with pornography? And she said, it makes me feel so cheap. It doesn't hurt anybody, really. She didn't feel his peerless love. She felt like she was competing with some fantasy that he was seeing with his pornography. It might not be pornography. Maybe it's some mistress called your job or your hobby. 
where your wife knows that if you have some free time, you'll spend it with your hobby, you'll f spend it working overtime, or maybe it's even your ministry. I'm blessed with the church that I have the privilege of helping pastor. In the early days, it was exciting, it was captivating. And I just poured in 70, 75 hours a week. And one day, Gladine told me she felt like a ministry widow and that the church had become like a mistress to me, that I was pouring so much time into my, quote, ministry that I was ignoring my wife. And what looked spiritual was actually carnal. And I had to repent of ministry and to devote myself more to my wife does my wife know that I'm reflecting Christ to her, imperfectly, but reflecting Christ and her feeling a peerless love, a particular love, a love that's not competed with by anything or anyone else? That my eyes are for her alone. I remember one time, Gladie and I got away on a little vacation, and uh, we're in Florida. We were at Clearwater Beach, beautiful beach, but we didn't think ahead of time it was spring break. So we're at Clearwater Beach, and there were all these young ladies that were not modestly clothed. I don't know how else to say that. So I started by taking off my glasses. <laughs> but that still wasn't good enough. And I finally said to Gladine, I says, Gladine, I don't know where to put my eyes. I don't know where to look. And uh, so finally we had this idea. We actually approached some local yokels and said, is there a beach around here that like families and older people go to? <laughs> They sent us up the road a ways, and we went to a beach that was inhabited by children and older folks, and it was less tempting. And she told me later how that encouraged her to know that I cared, that I, I wanted to protect my heart, I wanted to protect our relationship, and was willing to leave the beach if necessary. But do our wives know men that we have a peerless love for them, that our eyes are for them alone, that our ears are for them alone? We're not listening to the flattery of those ladies at work that our, our lips are for them alone, that we're not saying things to women, complimenting them on their looks, when we should only be saying things like that to our wives, that our hands are for them alone, that our wives know that my husband loves me with a peerless love, that there's no competition for his love, that it's devoted to me that way. How about a practical love? Jesus didn't merely tell us that he loved us. He did tell us that he loved us, but he did more than that, didn't he? He showed us the cross stands as a monument to his love that we never need to question. 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and literally gave himself up for her, gave himself up for her. That we love our wives that way. It's not just talk. It's action. Self-sacrificing action. Do we love our wives with practical love? And I think those of us that have been married for a while, we're the ones that especially need to hear this. So I think sometimes we can kind of get used to being married and we don't think of those practical ways of expressing Christ-like love. Things like asking, honey, what can I do for you today? 
you know, I'm going to go refill my water glass. Can I get you some? You know, for your younger men with children at home, honey, just you've had a big day. I'll go change a baby's diaper. No, I'm meddling, huh? <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you know, to sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, it's Monday night football, but you know what? I don't have to see the whole game, do I? You know, I can devote time to my wife and ensure in very practical ways I love her to open the door for her, to walk on the street side. Just those little things that say, it's not just talk to me, I mean it. I want to show you in very practical, tangible ways that, that I love you. Practical love. How about a protecting love? What does Jesus protect his church from? What does Jesus protect us from? He protects us from God's wrath, doesn't he? That's probably the most notable thing, that you and I deserve God's wrath because of our sin. And yet Jesus Christ absorbed the Father's wrath that you and I had earned. That day on the cross, He absorbed the Father's wrath so that now there's no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He protects us. It's a protecting love. He protects us from the attacks of Satan. He protects us from from division He's, he's a kind shepherd, as, as Steve told us earlier today, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Are we as husbands loving our wives in a Christ-like way, protecting her, protecting her from external evils? You know, this gets real, real daily, real practical, even for those who are raising kids. You men that have children at home, do you protect your wife from sassy kids? I have a very distinct memory of being a sassy 16-year-old. It's a very, it's a, a very clear memory to me. My dad is with the Lord now. He was a trucker. Um, you know, his left arm was browner than his right arm. <laughs> Big tough guy. Rarely saw tears in his eyes, rarely. The few times I saw him with tears in his eyes, he was usually talking about someone who'd come to faith in Christ. That moved his heart. But one day, after I'd sassed my mother, he sat me down at the kitchen table while Mom was fixing dinner. And with tears in his eyes, uncharacteristic tears in his eyes, he looked at me and listened to his words to me. He said, I never want to hear you talk to my wife that way again. And even though I was only 16, I got his point. He didn't say, I never want to hear you talk to your mother that way again. He said, I never want to hear you talk to my wife that way again. That he was protecting my mother from me. He was protecting my mother from me, a sassy 16-year-old. And my mom was three feet away working at the stove. How do you think she felt when she heard her husband say that? Yeah! (laughs) I don't think she did that. but (laughs) You know, that surely hearing my dad say that made her feel loved, like my husband's protecting me from this sassy teenage son of ours. Do you protect your wife from external evils, from from verbal abuse that might come from your kids, that might come from someone else, you're willing to step in to protect her? Do you protect your wife from unnecessary worries? And I've noticed something over the years. Men joke about how much their wives like to shop. You know, she went out and bought another $60 pair of shoes on sale, 60 you know. And we men don't shop as much, but when we shop, 
What do we get? I needed that new outboard. <laughs> I needed that new set of clubs. You know, and, and we don't shop as much, but what we get as men is usually big ticket stuff. You know, and, and I see guys doing stuff like that. Well, I needed that new outboard. I needed that new set of clubs. And their wives are like, ah, why'd you do that? How are we going to get our bills all paid? And, you know, I want to say to the guy, you know what? You could have done with yard sale clubs. That you're putting unnecessary worries on your wife. You could protect her by being more careful with your money. You know, there's so many ways we can protect our wives. Um, Peter said this. He was a married man. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, literally granting her honor as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you, fellow heirs with you, of the grace of life. You can protect your wife from internal evils. If you see your wife's heart going in the wrong direction and you protect her, you can lovingly, lovingly call her back to the path of following Christ. Say, honey, don't go there. That, that's not good for you. That's not good for your soul to be watching those kind of programs or to be reading that literature, to be surfing the net on those sites or whatever it is. Honey, let, let me help you in your following of Christ. How about another one here, a passionate love? And I realize this is a mixed group and we have different ages here, but let, let me talk discreetly but clearly about a passionate love. You know, sometimes I think we think that God loves us with a decided love of the will, which he does. He decides to love us. And we're uncomfortable with talking about he loves us with his affections. But does not Christ love us affectionately? I think of different verses from the prophets. Zephaniah 3.17. Don't you love this verse? Zephaniah 3.17. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. <laughs> the Lord sings over his people. He sings over his people. When you think about that, that he loves us so much that he would sing over us. Isaiah 62.5. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Your God will rejoice over you the way a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. There, there's passion there. There's emotion there. Isaiah 65, 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. Take delight in my people. That I think we should get more comfortable with the reality that God not only loves us with a decided love, but he also loves us with a passionate love, a love of affection, that he cares for us as his bride. Men, do we love our wives with a passionate love, with a romantic love? And now we're uncomfortable. You know, every so often I run into a man who's just really good at this. And, you know, I want to say to him, you're breaking the curve, man. <laughs> you know, you hear about these guys that they're buying gifts for their wives and they remember all the special days. And, you know, they're so creative. And some of us guys who aren't that creative, you know, where they're like, oh, I hope my wife doesn't hear about this. <laughs> you know, or she's going to think I should do something like that too. Man, can we not grow? in loving our wives with affection, with passion, talking, touching, thoughtfulness. You know, you can't read the Song of Solomon without realizing how much the physical expressions attached to the verbal expression, that there are all these verbal expressions of love that are attached to the physical. Or to quote C.J. Mahaney, uh, touch your wife's heart before you touch her body. 
By the way, that's a great book. If you men haven't read it yet, you're going to love the title. It's called Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. Isn't that a great title? Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God. C.J. Mahaney. Worth the read. It doesn't take long. It's a short book. His wife Carolyn wrote one chapter in it as well. But I would encourage you, sometimes when you talk about these issues, and in men's conferences I'm, I'm more explicit than I am here, but sometimes when you talk about this subject, you know, Christians get a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, squeamish here, like, aren't you going a little bit too far? I mean, talking about sexual issues is kind of an expression of Christ's love for his church. You know what I would say? It probably doesn't go far enough. We're finding the most powerful human expression of love is a picture of Christ's love for his bride, but using the analogy of an analogy, I mean, it, <laughs> it doesn't go far enough. We're, we're struggling. We're struggling for language. We're struggling for expression. Rather than saying, talking about physical intimacy between a husband and wife as being a picture, an expression of Christ's love for his bride, what we're saying is that's the best we can come up with. That's the most powerful expression we can think of. But his love for his bride, I'm sure, is infinitely greater. So rather than backing off, maybe we need to lean in and say, yeah, that a husband loves his wife passionately, physically, romantically, is an expression of Christ's love for his bride. A couple of more. You're getting the picture, aren't you? Christ loves his bride, the church, with a purifying love. Look at Ephesians 5 again. Is your Bible still open there? Look at verses 26, 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Present. I think sometimes when we see these presentation words in the New Testament, that we should be thinking of the analogy of a wedding. We have three adult kids all married, and two of them are daughters. So twice I've walked daughters down the aisle. Thankfully, they each have godly husbands. But each time I walked our daughter down the aisle, each daughter's down the aisle, I would stand there and look my soon-to-be son-in-law in the eye and say, Behold your bride. Now you better take good care of her. <laughs> and give him a hug, give her a hug. You know, that, that's not an exact quote, but that was the point. But I was presenting. I was presenting my daughter to her soon-to-be husband. And Christ is looking forward to the wedding day, being the bridegroom and Christ. I mean, he presents his own bride. But he is preparing us for the wedding day. And you read that, you read Ephesians 5, and, and you think about what he's doing there, that he's preparing us for that grand day. And you, you, your mind goes to things like... Um, Revelation 19, the wedding feast, and, and Revelation 21 about the bride descending from heaven as a beautiful bride adorned for her husband, purifying. By the way, you know, I think of that verse there in Ephesians 5, and it says, washing her with the water of the word. The, it's interesting, it's rhemati. It's not logos, it's rhemati. That it's the spoken word. It's probably referring to the spoken word of the gospel. That Christ speaks the gospel into us and, and purifies us with the word of the gospel. And as husbands, as Christian husbands, to do that for our wives. 
to be speaking the gospel into their lives, reminding them of whose they are. They, by God's grace, you're a daughter of the high King of heaven. You belong to him. You've been redeemed. There's no condemnation over you. We speak the gospel into our wives' lives, helping to purify them. I think a problem a lot of us husbands have, and I'm going to be blunt here, guys. I'm going to be honest. I, I think sometimes we men operate with this paradigm that if my wife were more like me, we'd have a much easier life. We'd have a much easier marriage. You know, why can't my wife be more like me? You know, if she were just more like me, we wouldn't have these problems. Why can't she think like me? Why can't she have my orientation in life if she were just more like me? We'd have a smooth marriage. I've maybe thought not thought that explicitly, but I know I've thought that. <laughs> Guys, if we want our wives to be like us, we're aiming way too low. We're aiming way too low. Why would you want your wife to be like you? <laughs> Who do you want your wife to be like? To be like Jesus. Five years ago this spring, we had a funeral for one of our founding elders. Now, one thing I should tell you is that he died unexpectedly at 56. He, he wasn't even deathly sick. He had a pain problem in his leg and went to the hospital and a nurse, a nurse mistakenly gave him the medicine that belonged to the man in the next bed. And it killed him. He, she put it in his IV bag while he was sleeping, accidentally, and he never woke up. And so here was a man who went to the hospital for a routine procedure and didn't come out alive. There are about 600 people. It's probably the largest funeral we've ever... It is the largest funeral we've ever had in our church. There were 600 people at his funeral. Um, and as we were preparing for the funeral, his widow, Lois, asked if she could say something at the funeral. Now, that's not typical. That's not typical for the widow to say, can I say something at the funeral? But we, um, we told Lois, yes. And, and I'm summarizing her little short speech at her husband's funeral, but she said, in essence, she said, I want you all to know that I'm more like Christ today because I was married to that man for 35 years. I'm more like Christ today because I was married to that man for 35 years. And I, I sat there and listened to my sister in Christ say that, and I, I began to cry. I thought, would my wife say that? If Gladine outlives me, would she be able to say with integrity at my funeral, I'm more like Christ today because I was married to that man for all those years, that I helped her be more like Jesus Christ. I think, men, sometimes when our wives aren't doing well spiritually, we get frustrated. And I'm speaking as a fellow husband. We get frustrated. It's like, why is she like that? Why can't she change? Why, why is she doing that? Why is she saying that? Why can't she change? One time when we were going through a rough time in our marriage, one of my fellow pastors, we asked him and his wife to come over and talk to us. Could you guys just come over and talk to us? And uh, they did. I think I'm glad. <laughs> Some of you know Steve Henry. <laughs> it was Steve and Robin. And um, Steve challenged me. And 
one of the things he challenged me with was, if, if you think gliding's wrong, then what are you, you going to do about that as a husband? And we began to talk about me not being frustrated with my wife, but me being a discipler of my wife. And, and there's a whole paradigm there that's worth exploring. Married men, do you see yourself as your wife's primary discipler? If I were to interview the ladies here this evening and ask each of them individually, <clears throat> who are the three most influential people in your life spiritually? Who are the three most spiritually influential people in your life? Would your wife say, well, obviously my husband. Now, give me a minute. I need to think of two more. Would, would, that, be, would that be a knee-jerk reaction? Would she say, well, obviously my husband. Who, who else? Who else? Would she say you? I mean, you would be number one, obviously. Would my wife say that? That as husbands, we are our wives' primary disciplers. That no one's going to impact our wives spiritually like a husband. To say, I, I want to reflect Christ. I want to speak Christ. I want to speak his gospel into my wife's life. I want to help her to be more like Jesus. A praying love. Jesus prays for his church. We read John 17. We think of other passages where Jesus prays for us. Do I pray for my wife? Do I pray with my wife? Thinking of those times that are maybe more dedicated times of prayer, maybe just spontaneously. I, there are times I miss it. You know, that my wife might share concern in her heart and uh, I'm just trying to fix her. You know, well, here, let, let, me, let me give you the solution to your problem. And saying, well, why don't we pray about that? For our wives to hear us pray for them and with them. A purposeful love. Christ loves us with a purposeful love. He's going somewhere. Jesus has taken us someplace, isn't he? And we look forward to that grand day when we will be in his presence forever and ever, that he will come and live with us, and he will be our God. We will be his people. He's aiming for that as purposeful. My purposeful in loving my wife, wanting her to grow in her character, to re that she's more reflecting Christ, that she's growing in her understanding of God's Word, she's growing in the use of her spiritual gifts. Am I purposeful that way? And one more, a persevering love. Aren't we glad that Jesus never stops loving us? That He loves us. It's a persevering love. Do I love my wife with a persevering love? Constant, continual <clears throat> Last month, my it was the anniversary of my parents' marriage. Dad's been gone for several years now. Um, had Dad still been living, it would have been their 66th. And um, I'm a Facebooker. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but I'm on Facebook. And um, I thought, you know what? I want to honor my parents on Facebook. And my deceased uncle had given me some of his old slides, and uh, I mean, before he died. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was digitizing them, you know. And I, I found this photo of my parents' wedding, uh, where at the reception they're feeding each other cake. You remember that? Uh, you know, they're feeding each other cake. Well, when mom and dad had their 60th anniversary, they were at our house. And, and they did that again. They actually fed each other cake at their 60th, and I snapped a picture of it. I found that photo. I found both photos. One from their wedding day and one from exactly 60 years later. And they were standing in the same positions, feeding each other cake, and I posted those pictures up you know, next to each other on Facebook. And 
I suppose I'm a little bit like my dad. I don't cry real easily. But as I put those pictures up, I just began to cry. I was sitting actually at Gladine's laptop doing that, and I began to cry, thinking, what an example, till death do us part. They, they lived with each other for 63 years, um, for better, for worse, richer, poor, mostly poor, till death do us part. And I thought, yeah, we need more heroes like that. We need more examples of people who have no parachutes in their plane of marriage. <laughs> that they say, we're, we're together. We're going to work through this by God's grace, a persevering love. That as the world watches us as Christian couples, we can reflect Christ. Imperfectly, yes, but we can be reflecting Christ. And in our marriages, that we're showing people that Christ loves us perseveringly and we Christian husbands love our wives perseveringly. Men, there's good news. We're not without hope. We're not without help. As the gospel gets hold of our hearts, it transforms us, draws our attention to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus Christ as we contemplate him, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And as we contemplate Christ and He transforms us to be more like Christ, that begins to be seen in very practical daily ways like how we husband our wives. The Gospels, as Rakuchis say, is very practical. And it begins to, show, begins to show up in the daily ways we live as husbands. That we reflect Christ in our husbanding showing the world the value of Christ. The Holy Spirit will answer that prayer. He wants the Son to be honored. The Holy Spirit wants the Son to be honored. So if we pray as men, Lord, help me reflect Christ in my marriage, the Holy Spirit has every reason to honor that prayer request because it honors Jesus Christ. Tomorrow night, we'll pick up this theme and we'll talk very openly about marriage problems. I'll share some of our stories with Gladine's permission share some of our stories of how, as we've struggled in our 39 years, how the Gospels come and worked on us and worked in us to transform us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his love for us as his bride. And we would ask, Lord, that as people of grace, that we would have a growing understanding of your gospel. Not only, Lord, its meaning theologically, but its application in daily life. And Lord, that by your grace then, that we could be living out those imperatives like husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So Lord, I pray for each of us here in our marriages, but also the many marriages that we impact in our home churches. In Jesus' name, amen.